Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. You notice that uh, Jesus is now with his disciples leaving the district of Galilee, entering more south into the area of Judea. Of course, that's where Jerusalem is, the capital. So he's on the way to the cross. He's already told the disciples two times about his coming suffering. In 8 verse 31, in 9 verse 31, Luke 9 speaks about how Christ steadfastly looked, looked towards Jerusalem. I mean, he steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, he's now going towards the cross. And uh, 10 verse 1, right, he brings us, this brings us to the region of, of Judea. Let's begin reading there. Then he arose from there, came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. He answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. And then our focus is verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Let not man separate. And the house's disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Our focus is verses 6 through 9. Part of it because this is also the wedding text of Chris and Sarah. And... Uh, the same points, the same applications. It's just, we, uh, there's different applications as well that flow from this text that are also very important for us as a, as a congregation. So. so, three things you should know about marriage. But you notice, as you look at Mark 10, Jesus uh, speaks about three different things mainly. He talks about the role of marriage. And then he talks about the role of children. You see that in verses 13 through 16. And then the role of possessions, 17 and following. Uh, he talks about the place of each in his kingdom. Right? There's a kingdom perspective. There's a way that Christians ought to see marriage and children and possessions in the kingdom of Christ. But today we're going to focus, Lord willing, on verses 1 through 12, especially verses 6 through 9, on the theme of, <clears throat> of marriage. But you notice the context here in verse 3. The Pharisees are, yeah, testing Jesus. They're trying to trap him. So that's really what's going on here. And they're questioning him, him about divorce and the specific permission Moses gave. Now, uh, it's a very important topic to deal with because... You notice that in, in a culture, in a country, or even in a church, with the acceptance of divorce, 
that usually opens the door to the acceptance of man marrying a man, a woman marrying a woman, and sex outside of marriage, a man having multiple wives or a wife having multiple men. So this is a very important discussion because a lot of it begins with the acceptance. We're not talking about whether divorce happens or not. It does happen. It's a reality. But we're talking about the acceptance of divorce. And basically that's where the decline begins in a culture, but also in a church when it comes to the point of an acceptance. Um, there's no doubt um, the answer that Jesus gives is to uphold marriage, to protect marriage. He upholds marriage as God made it. And because of the reality of sin today, no one can deny that. Marriage is not easy. It's hard work. It's plain hard work. And we need the grace of God for that. So there are no three easy steps to a happy marriage. Welcome, Nick. No three easy steps to a happy marriage. Sometimes you hear of speakers, sometimes you read books that talk this way as if three simple steps. Don't get those books, don't listen to those speakers. They're misleading you. There are no such thing as three easy steps. It's simply not true. Ignore it. What's important to know, though, is three broad themes. Three broad themes about marriage from the Bible. And that's what Jesus brings out here to the Pharisees. They want to soft pedal the marriage, the institution of marriage. Jesus wants to restore it and bring it back to what it should be in all its beauty. And here we need to think in terms of creation, the way things were in the beginning, fall, what happened to marriage, and then redemption, what Christ does for us in marriage. So that's what we want to look first of all this morning. Is God established the institution of marriage at creation. He made it. He made it good. We see second of all, that marriage today is marred by sin, by the fall of man into sin. So much brokenness there is. That's the, that's the reality. That's the situation we find ourselves today. It's a result of sin. The only couple who had a perfect marriage is who? Adam and Eve. That's before they sinned. They had the complete marriage. Okay, so that's the second thing. And third, we're going to look at um, we need Christ. Right? As, as, as those in Christ, we need Him. We need the power of Christ's redemption because He's the only one who can restore marriage to the way in which God intended marriage to be. So in this question regarding divorce, okay, Jesus in Mark 10, 6-9, he points back to the way things had been from the very beginning of creation. He doesn't go to today. Certainly these are the real, real things of today. But he goes back to the very beginning, to the principles, to the institution of marriage itself. And we see, first of all, who made marriage? God. <coughs> You don't hear that in the media. You don't hear that in the world. Man didn't make it. Marriage is not something that man made up and sort of can discard when he wants. It's not just a human institution. That's not true. Jesus himself 
goes back to the very beginning in verse 6. Look at verse 6. From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Notice that. Only two genders. Don't give in to the lie of our culture where it talks about ten genders. I think even as many as 35 genders today. The Bible warns us not to be not, not to not to be taken captive by the deceit and the lies of the culture around us. We need to be strengthened. We need to be reminded what God's word says. Two genders, male and female. Jesus goes back to the beginning of history. The Bible there tells us that God created Adam before Eve and that he created Adam specifically male. Now, some people will tell you, well, God created Adam both male and female. That's not true. He's not androgynous. God specifically created Adam male. A man. Male. And God did so with a specific view to Adam's intimate union with Eve. That's what marriage is. Marriage is an intimate union. The closest union on earth between people is between a husband and a wife. He created her from the rib of Adam, as a female, as a woman. And you read the first wedding recorded in history. It's found in Genesis 2. After God forms the woman from the rib of Adam, what does he do? As the Father, as God the Father, he brings her to the man. And then usually at weddings we sing a song, and that's exactly what Adam did. He sang a song. I don't know the tune to that song. Maybe you do. But it's a song, all right. If you know it, let me know. But it was the first wedding song in history. This is now bone of my bones. And they kept on singing. The flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It was a celebration song. A song about the marriage between the first man and the first woman in history. The woman wasn't made out of thin air or out of the dust of the ground. From where? From the rib of the Lord God had taken from man. Woman is uniquely designed by God to complement man. I didn't say complement. Certainly we can praise a woman. But here complement means to complete. To complete the man. Note the difference between complement and complement. Complement is when you're praising somebody. Complement is when you're uniquely suited for that person. God made woman to suit man, to be a suitable helper. Man the leader, woman the helper. A suitable helper. Uniquely designed, made to fit each other, serving together in the kingdom of God. Not just a companion. Oh yes, a companion, no doubt. A companion, but also a complement. An animal is not a complement. Another man is not a complement for a man in terms of marriage. A man may not, God did not create man to marry a man. Absolutely not. He did not create woman to marry a woman. There's not, they're not complementarian. Woman is exactly what the man needs a suitable helper. Equal to the man, but also his opposite. 
God made the woman from man and also for man. We need to be really, really clear about this, that what you hear around you is very different from what the Bible says. God made marriage between one man, one woman, for life, to the exclusion of all others. So yeah, God's design, male and female. That's verse 6. Verse 7, we also see something else about God's design for marriage. Leaving, cleaving, weaving. So male and female, we see that in verse 6. That's God's design for marriage. But his design also includes leaving, cleaving, and weaving. Jesus affirms that, reaffirms that. He confirms that in verse 7. He goes right back to what is spoken in Genesis 2.24. For this reason, says Jesus, a man shall leave his father, there's the leaving, and mother, and be joined to his wife, there's the cleaving, and the two shall become one flesh, there's the weaving. Leaving, cleaving, weaving. The meaning is this, a man shall leave behind his father and mother and be glued to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We have to be really clear that a man is not married to his family, but to his wife. He leaves his father and mother to be joined to his wife. Very clear from the Bible. A wife is not married to her family, but she's married to her husband. To think otherwise, it's a recipe for disaster. You know how it is. Sometimes a couple, one will put their family first before their spouse. It kills marriage. It's a recipe for disaster. We see it. Again and again and again. Because that's not God's design. God's design is the husband is the first after God for the wife. And for the wife, the husband is first for her after God. God is first. But then after God, the spouse is first. That's the way God designed it. Parents are no longer first. Siblings are no longer first. The spouse is after the Lord. And second of all, notice, it's a commitment to each other. To each other. Not first of all commitment to mom and dad, but to each other. And third, it also includes a sexual relationship that binds you together as one, the weaving. Leaving, cleaving, weaving. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't respect family relationships. We should. We should enjoy family relationships. But in marriage, your primary tie, your primary attachment is to the one other, is to one another as husband and wife. That's the way God designed it. And Jesus confirms it here. Many marriages suffer and are broken apart because parents interfere in a decision-making Processes of a young couple. It happens all over the world. Really, it's not unique to one culture or another. 
but it happens. Yes, Jesus is so clear here, isn't he? We can't argue against Jesus. We can't. Marriages suffer when emotional ties to parents are not cut. God designed man and woman for each other. You notice that here, Jesus is not only describing what happens here, he's saying what God intends in marriage. He made marriage, he made it beautiful, that the two, male and female, should be loving, they should be giving to each other, giving one giving oneself to the other in a lifelong commitment. Husband and wife, just to review, just to over just to review for a moment, husband and wife complement. They complete each other, begin a new home. God designed a marriage is for male and female, one man, one woman to complement each other, and then to have children to serve the Lord. Before we say more about this, we need to ask a question. Why are so many, so many marriages broken today? We live in a broken world. Yeah, the brokenness is reflected in our lives as well, isn't it? The brokenness of broken marriages. And that leads us to our second theme from the Bible. What does sin do? It hurts. It breaks apart. It threatens marriages. And again, we go back to the beginning. I mean, it's so important that we know what the Bible says from the very beginning. And once again, we go back to the beginning of Genesis 3. You know, our first parents, they didn't want to obey the Bible anymore. They said, we know better. And so they rejected the authority of Scripture. They rejected God and His Word. And what happened? Marriages broke. Sin came into the world. Death through sin. By disobeying God, we turn against him. And it doesn't stop there. Because of sin, we turn against one another. And it's the most painful thing in the most intimate of relationships. And that's in marriage. Yeah. Think about why. I just want to look at two things briefly under this point. Under the first point, we looked at God made marriage. First of all, male and female. Second of all, leaving, cleaving, weaving. But under the second point, we want to see, first of all, that sin complicates marriages. It does. It just, it complicates things, doesn't it? Consider the next chapter, Genesis 3. After man sinned, God says to the woman, You know, your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Immediately you see how sin affects the marriage relationship. The wife, what God is saying here is the wife will desire to control her husband. She won't be happy with his headship. Because she wants to be in control. As head in the marriage. And he in turn may rule over her harshly. Even abusively. It's all the consequence of sin. You notice that since that time, apart from the grace of God in Christ, the tendency of marriage now because of sin is that you don't have necessarily two working together as one flesh, but two individuals who many times work separately and even against each other. 
And this is why Jesus in Mark 10 reinforces what the Bible says concerning marriage from the very beginning. You notice the debate here. The debate or discussion is over divorce. Divorce, think of it this way, divorce is a tearing apart of what God has brought together. Think of a garment that's sewn, it's so interweaved, and you tear that apart. That's the sense here. Um, when, when Jesus says in verse 9, you know, not to tear asunder, it's tearing something apart that's just so unnatural. That's why divorce, separation, and marriage is so painful. The religious leaders among the Jews, the Pharisees, you know what they were doing? They were soft-pedaling the institution of marriage. You know why? Because what's happening among them? There were divorces among them. They were sort of, and that tends to be our response, right? When hurt and pain come as a result of sin in our lives, we tend to soft-pedal the institution that God has given us, the principles. And now what they're doing is they're using, oh, they're using Scripture, all right? They're using Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, 2, and 3. And they're using Moses' concession in a wrong way in order to approve of easy divorce. Easy divorce laws. All they had to do was write out a certificate of divorce and hand it in and marriage was finished. It is said in those days a man could send his wife away simply because she burned his dinner. Can you believe that? She would burn his dinner and he would write a certificate of divorce. You know, the Pharisees were far more interested in the permission of Deuteronomy 24 than God's intention from the very beginning. Divorce happens, yes. It's a painful reality in the church. But Jesus goes back to the beginning. This is God's intention, he said, from the very beginning. Moses did not command this. Moses simply gave a concession. It was not a command. It was simply a concession. Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart. Verse 5. Sin complicates marriage. That's why the concession was there. It complicates marriage. And sometimes people see no way out other than to leave their spouse. But you know what? We don't have to merely look at those who separate or who have divorced their spouse. Uh, We can look at our own homes. Right? It can be even very pretentious, our homes. Oh, we're living together in the same house. We're living together in the same room. But we don't want you to see our relationship. In some homes, the fighting continues all the time. Never forgiving each other. Husband never forgives the wife. Wife never forgives the husband. They live separately. They go to separate beds. They eat separately. They're always fighting. But, yeah, but that's shiny on the outside. But it's really rotten on the inside. They're never getting along. But you know what? That's our hearts, isn't it? That's a problem with our heart. The Bible tells us that our heart is naturally self-seeking, self-loving, self-promoting, self-indulgence, self-willed. That's not a good recipe for a happy marriage. (laughs) 
If you're only about yourself, it's hard to get along with the other. That's us and Adam. That's, that's all of us and Adam. That's our nature, isn't it? Our sinful nature is just not a good recipe for a happy marriage. We ourselves stand in the way. Marriage, marriage needs really Christ. The power of Christ's redemption. We need God's grace as the foundation. <laughs> we need Christ as the foundation for marriage. Always and each day again. You know, it's interesting. We talk about how sin compliment, com- complicates marriages. But the Bible doesn't leave us there. Because we see as a second subpoint under sin-hurting marriages, we see that the gospel, the word of God, confronts that sin. It confronts it. Jesus, God, God shows us mercy by not leaving us in that. He wants to restore us. So it confronts us and it hurts. The confrontation hurts. Think of the brokenness. All you have to do is read the first book of Corinthians, the church of Corinth was filled with all kinds of situations, broken marriages and, and, and the sort. The church of Corinth, very, very real to life in the church today, isn't it? We don't have to hide it because it's just real. It's real. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7 for a few minutes. We can't read all of it because it's a long chapter. It's 40 verses. I encourage you to read it at home. We just don't have enough time to focus on it. But you notice that there were some in the church in Corinth who came to faith in Jesus. They believed in Jesus. But their spouse did not believe. And so you had a situation in the church where you had a husband or wife believing, but the husband or wife of that one not believing. I should say the spouse not believing. So one was believing, the other one was not believing. That was one situation. Others came to believe in Christ and uh, they were divorced. They experienced adultery. They experienced all the, the wrecks of sin in their lives. Perhaps there were even some in the congregation where the divorce happened afterwards. All kinds of situations in the church of Corinth there. But the question is, those who believed and their spouse did not, should they divorce? Once you come to faith and your spouse is not a believer, should they divorce? What's the answer to that? No. What about these new believers? May they remarry? You notice here that the Lord through the Apostle Paul instructs the church. And even here, the the Apostle Paul wants to protect marriage. So basic of an institution, is it? Notice what Paul says. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 12, 13, and 15. If any brother, he's talking about a believer, has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, don't divorce her. Don't. Let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. But if the unbeliever departs, let it not be you that causes that, but let the unbeliever be the one that makes that choice. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. Let her depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. 
And even then, when you see in 1 Peter 3, uh, there again you see, sometimes in that situation, it mentions how the husband may, might not be a believer, but the wife is. But perhaps God will use the wife's conduct, her godly conduct, to win her husband over. Something we can always pray for. Right? This is the real, <laughs> the real situation that we live in as brothers and sisters in Christ. All kinds of backgrounds and scenarios. That's the one thing. Also, in certain circumstances, in certain circumstances, God's word does allow one who's divorced to remarry. I believe there's every indication of scripture that points to that. Matthew 5.32, if you read that, Jesus, by implication, allows it on the grounds of sexual morality. So, for example, if your spouse takes off and has an affair with another lady or another man, that can be grounds rightful grounds for you to divorce that person, but also, by implication, remarry again. 1 Corinthians 7 also seems to allow remarriage, also in the case of willful desertion. You notice that we just read in verse 13, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Okay, Which seems to indicate that there may be some room for or permission for remarriage. But Paul makes this very important principle, verse 40, verse 39. As long as they remarry in the Lord, it has to be a Christian marriage. It has to be another believer. That's the point there. Think of what Amos 3, verse 1 says. How can two walk together unless they be agreed? That's the important principle, right? If, if only in the Lord. Now, I know this is a very different, it's a very complex topic. You may need to save it for another sermon. But at the same time, if you want to discuss privately someone to guide you, that's excellent, right? It's a way to, to work through a situation. There's grace. Always remember that. His grace is greater than our sin, the most heinous sin. God's grace is bigger, Christ is bigger. There were believers in the church of Corinth who came out of a notorious past. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 reminds us there were those who lived a life of fornication. What's fornication? Fornication is just living a life of sexual pleasure with any and every woman or man under the sun. There were those who came out of that. There were those who were committing adultery. There were those who had committed homosexuality. Men were marrying men. Some of them came out of that. Paul says it this way. Such were some of you. Notice, past tense. You came out of this life until Jesus changed you. Until the gospel changed you. The gospel confronted you. And Jesus changed you. He transformed you. And he goes on to say, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, we need to be really clear. Even the Bible shows that homosexuality is not acceptable. They, were, they came out of that. Fornication is not acceptable. They came out of that. The gospel transformed them. It's a lifestyle that God brought them out of through repentance a turning away 
from sin and of turning to Christ, who truly forgives, who truly um, restores. That's the only therapy. The only therapy for brokenness is Jesus. We'll call that conversion therapy. That's fine. Whatever the state may say, it's fine. But this is the only true therapy there is in broken situations, sinful situations. Um, you may have heard the, the news that the world is celebrating something. And it came out of England. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and his wife, or his wife-to-be, Carrie Simmons, are expecting a baby as they, as a couple, announce their engagement. And the world is celebrating. What? Is this something we're celebrating? Living in fornication? Having a baby out of wedlock? Is that acceptable? Do we celebrate that? Do we sing about that? No. Someone called me last night. It was a Muslim. He says, really? Christians just stay quiet? And is, this, is this okay? I had a mouthful. I had to sort through it with him. I said, no, it's not acceptable. But you know what? Christ can change him. Christ can bring him to his knees. Bring him to repentance. He can bring Boris, even a Boris Johnson, to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and, and begin a new life. And that's what happened in the church of Corinth, right? They came out of those kinds of lifestyles. And then you read, they were washed, they were justified, they were sanctified by the Spirit of our God. And this shows that a believer from the date of his conversion or her conversion to Jesus, starts a new history from square one. Never should we be going back to the past. Right? Never should we be reminding a fellow believer, yeah, but you're this, you're this, you're this. A believer is new in Christ. Equally sharing in the grace of God. Equal status as children, as sons and daughters of God. We should always remember that. In Christ, there is a new beginning, washed, justified, sanctified. The past is forgiven. No longer may we regard them in terms of past sin, but who they are now in Christ. Christ is so much bigger, so much bigger than our sin. It brings us to our third broad theme. Christ restores marriage. We'll see two little points on that. We'll see the pattern or model for Christian marriage. And then, don't let man separate your marriage. You know, Jesus is able to restore our marriages to what God intended, even under the roofs of our own home, where there's reconciliation between husband and wife. That's why Jesus reinforces Mark 10, the marriage institution of Genesis. He came into this very broken world, a broken world caused by sin, and he came to lay down his life. What love that is. To lay down his life and sacrifice his, his life for the unlovable. That's us. Came to give his life on the cross through his death. And by the power of his resurrection, what does he do? He lifts up. He raises up. He brings beauty out of ash heap. 
He makes it beautiful again. That's what His grace does, isn't it true? I think it's always really important. You know, when, that we always remind ourselves and one another about the rich, abundant grace in Christ. And I always think of the four R's. When we're in a situation, and it's a big situation of brokenness because of our sin. First step, the first R is recognize your sin. And the second step is repent of your sin. Turn from it. Turn to Christ. And the third R, be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Trusting in Him. And the fourth R, it's the Holy Spirit who renews your marriage, who renews your life. Okay, so recognize, repent, reconcile, be reconciled, and experience renewal in Him. So important. Jesus restores marriage so that it pictures, there's the model part. Our marriages should be pictures. He restores marriages so it may be a picture of a relationship between Jesus and the church, between Christ and the church. What does that look like? That relationship between Christ and the church? How does that look like in marriage? Paul says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives. How much should you love your wife, husbands? I mean, 90%? I mean, with everything. How much? This much. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. In other words, be ready to die for your wife. That's, that's how much you should love your wife. Be ready to die for your wife. Okay? Sacrifice yourself for her. Even if she is not lovable. This is what Jesus did for the church. But Ephesians 5 also says, Wives, submit. That's a horrible word in our culture today. The word submit is a bad word. But it's not a bad word. It's a great word. It's a precious word. Right? Because it makes for orderliness. It makes for beauty. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. How? Just as the church is subject to Christ. Wives, Paul says, give yourselves to your husbands. Allow him to be the head. Trust him. He'll make mistakes. But let him be the head. And Jesus reminds us that in him, that leads us to little point number two. The model for marriage is Christ and the church. But let man not separate that. Let not man separate your marriage. See verses 8 and 9 of Mark 10. You are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Those words joined together means literally to yoke together. This is what, this is what God does in Christ. He yokes us together in even a, a stronger way. It's an agricultural metaphor. You have two oxen walking together with a yoke that they walk together, or two horses. Likewise, as husband and wife, God has yoked you together. To think together, to talk together, to work together, to pull together, to play together, to pray together, to read the Bible together, to worship in the Lord's house together. Sounds really strange in our day and age. Many, I hear many people say, I'm never getting married. Look at how marriages are falling apart. The Bible doesn't say that. You may remain single. It's not wrong. But marriage is a beautiful thing with Christ as the foundation. 
Some here know of broken marriages from personal experience or close family members who have experienced it. But remember, Christ is bigger than our sin. No, we don't minimize sin. We don't make it less than what it really is. We don't minimize the the hurt and the pain it brings. But rather, we lift up Christ. We lift up the cross. And we show that salvation and redemption comes through Him, through the cross. And that God sincerely offers forgiveness to all who repent and believe in Christ, who gave Himself on the cross. To all who experience the pain of separation. You know what? That word separate, in that verse, verse 9, let not man separate. That same word separate is also used in Romans 8, verse 39. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You think about human love. It's not strong. It easily breaks. It easily falls apart. Marriages break. But when God joins you in union with Christ through faith in Him, our bridegroom, there is not a power on earth that can separate you from God's love. His power, the power of His love is so strong. So strong. His love is so strong. And that's why I think of Ecclesiastes, right? The three-fourth cord is not easily broken. You have you, you have your spouse, and you have Christ. It's not easily broken. There are no three easy steps to a happy marriage. We need God's grace to work, to sacrifice. And remember creation, fall, redemption. God made marriage beautiful. Sin is the great spoiler. We need Jesus who restores God's intention. Christ, our bridegroom, He also offers himself to each one of us this day. And he says that he has given his life for you as a sacrifice for all your sins. Whatever those sins may be, however heinous those sins may be, look at the church of Corinth. Trust in him. Because he washes, he cleanses, he forgives, he justifies, he sanctifies, makes you equal participant in the family of Christ. He gives you the grace you need. And whatever state you are in, all of us have a different state that we're in. But he gives the grace in that state. In whatever state you are in, be patient and know the forgiveness of the Lord. But also know that God continues to do his work. Because after all, the Bible speaks of a greater marriage to come. There's a bigger one to come. A huge marriage. A banquet that you've never had in your life. Hey, Enosh, you've been to marriage banquets? There's a, have you ever been to a wedding? Yeah, I think you have. But there's a big one. There's a huge wedding banquet that's coming. In the new creation, what is that wedding? You know, in the new creation, we won't be marrying. No one will be marrying another person. There will be no more marriage between men and women. Matthew 22, verse 30. But we as God's people belong to the bridegroom through faith in Him. And our bridegroom, Jesus, He's making a table ready. A huge table. And that table is full of food. 
full of joy, full of fellowship to all who trust in him. One bridegroom, one bride in union and communion forever. And so whatever state you find yourself in, know that as a family in Christ, we have something great to look forward to. The marriage wedding, the marriage banquet to come. And that's forever. There is no greater marriage to look forward to than in one where there will be union and communion forever. To him be the glory. Praise God. Amen.